1: I'll be frank with you, dear listener. When it was put to me that we should do an episode of Politics on the Couch about the parliamentary battle for Brexit, my first thought was that I would need a lie down before revisiting that particular political trauma. Happily, we have a couch. And revisiting stressful political times in a state of analytical tranquility, well, that's what this podcast is all about. I'm Raphael Baer, by the way. And it won't come as a surprise to most listeners that I didn't enjoy much of British politics between 2016 and 2019, between the referendum result for leaving the EU and Britain actually leaving the EU. I found that period so disturbing, in fact, that I wrote a book about the underlying causes of tension and conflict, the polarising vortex that seemed to consume British democracy. I try not to plug my book too aggressively on the podcast, but since we're on the subject, you can find out more on my website, raphaelbear.com. But there is another story to be told, all about the close political combat that happened inside the House of Commons. It was an extraordinary period, marked simultaneously by constant crisis and suffocating stasis. Nothing was moving, and everything was in turmoil. The referendum handed British politicians an instruction to end EU membership, But the people who had campaigned for that result had no practical idea about how it should be done, or even what it would involve. And the Prime Minister who'd called the referendum, David Cameron, was so blithely arrogant and complacent about what he thought the result would be, he gave no thought to what might happen if his side, the Remainers, lost. The result was a political crisis that was also an institutional crisis for Parliament, which became a constitutional crisis. Throw in an indecisive election, a hung parliament, and some party leaders who frankly were woefully under-equipped for the task, and you get, well, you get what we got, the mother of battles in the mother of parliaments. And as in any battle, it can be hard to make sense of it all at the time, and once the fog has cleared, it's easy to forget some of the extraordinary scenes, the procedural and legal skirmishes, the way the unprecedented became almost routine. Luckily, there is now a place you can go to understand it all, an authoritative, comprehensive guide written with great analytical lucidity and narrative verve. It is The Parliamentary Battle Over Brexit by Meg Russell and Lisa James, two eminent scholars at the Constitution Unit at University College London. And for this episode of Politics on the Couch, I spoke to one of them, Meg Russell, director of that unit and also UCL's Professor of British and Comparative Politics. In other words, a world-class authority on Britain's parliamentary system of democracy, the best imaginable person to take me through the stresses it came under as a result of Brexit and how close it came to breaking point. Spoiler alert, a little too close for comfort. Despite my initial forebodings, I thoroughly enjoyed my tour of the old Brexit battlements. There were so many facets to it, angles I'd forgotten, twists in the tale. But before we got into the drama, I started by asking Meg Russell if... As a constitutional scholar, she too had found that period exceptionally stressful, and whether it was at all cathartic to write it all down.
0: One of the things you realise when you write books like this is that you end up having a sense of what was going on even better than many of the people who were involved at the time. So this was an immensely confusing period, very complicated, and everybody has their own vantage points within and outside parliament. And it's only really afterwards, when you look back across the whole piece, that you work out, you know, there are different people doing different things in parallel with each other. They don't know what each other are up to. And it's only when you talk to them afterwards, actually, that that you realize the full picture. But in terms of being traumatic, yes, I would say it was. There are also some very dark moments in the book the chapter i have to say after boris johnson has taken over which covers the prorogation it's it's a really tough story and the closer you look at it the more upset you come you you you're liable to become as a result
1: for me that's the bit where actually reading it i felt that the raw anger rise up inside me again particularly the there's a moment when Actually, it's after the prorogation has been declared void, effectively, by the Supreme Court. Uh, and we'll come back to that process in a second. But so Johnson is back in Parliament and he's talking about what we would think of as the Ben Act, which was rushed through very quickly to essentially make it impossible for. The UK to leave the EU without a deal, which Boris Johnson called Ben
0: Burt to give to give Ben Burt. Burt. Yes, let's not forget Alistair Burt. Um, Yes,
1: Alistair Burt, who 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 interestingly also had a heart attack around that time, uh, and and he and I uh, bonded about that, and both blamed politics for our cardiovascular disease. But anyway, that's a different issue. Um, The and and Johnson was calling it the sort of the surrender act and the capitulation act. Uh, and Paula Sheriff, Labour MP, I'm going to quote from the book here, says, Many of us in this place are subject to death threats and abuse every single day. Let me tell the Prime Minister that they often quote his words surrender, act, betrayal, traitor. And I, for one, am sick of it. We must moderate our language, and that has to come from the Prime Minister first, so I should be interested in hearing his opinion. To which Johnson says, I have to say that I have never heard so much humbug in all my life. And then he goes on to say, the best way to honor the memory of Joe Cox would be I think to get Brexit done. Now I read that and the feelings that I had towards Boris Johnson once again on reading that are hard to put into words without using terms that we try to avoid on this podcast.
0: There are some really low points in that chapter and and it doesn't get a lot better when you get to the 2019 general election.
1: If you were sort of narrating the the theatre the drama of it the story of that 2016 to 2019 period that's the the act 5 Scene one, the, the very, very uh, hugely dramatic constitutional and political cultural moment. How imperiled do you think British democracy was at that moment? By the time we'd come to a an illegal dissolution of Parliament, if that's what it was, well, that is what it was.
0: That was a very bleak, bad moment, and things had got very, very worrying at that point. It did kind of come right in the end, but it would have been hard to imagine a few years earlier, that we ever would have arrived at a point like that, um, with a government seeking to basically shut down parliament to prevent debate on the key political issue of the day. But by then, as you know, you've already referred to this, so many people were so traumatised. Parliamentarians were exhausted. The public was exhausted um, you know the, the 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 slogan for 2019 was clearly a very effective one get brexit done and what that meant was not just let's implement brexit it was please let's stop doing this. Um, everybody just wanted it to be over so we've got to really desperate measures at that point but that chapter charts, how this all fits into a story which i know you talk about with other people on this podcast of um populism democratic backsliding we've seen a whole series of attacks on our institutions by that moment. I mean, one of the reasons for writing the book was because Parliament is central to our democracy. But during this period, its role became so disputed, it was not only the site of the arguments about Brexit, it itself was denounced and criticised regularly. You then have the courts coming in, you know, the prorogation resulted in a court case, it was the second court case that we'd seen about the appropriate role for Parliament, the earlier one being about the triggering of article 50 that 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 case results in the enemies of the people headline so you know you've got a tax on Parliament you've got a tax on the courts and then ultimately you've got a prime minister who seeks to shut Parliament down he does a number of other things in that chapter as well you know he there are suggestions that the Ben Act, which you referred to that maybe he won't comply with the law there are suggestions that you might have. Um, a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister and that we, he would, quote, dare the Queen to sack him. Things have got very, very bad by that point, but clearly we do recover.
1: You, know, you mentioned earlier that if, the the importance of, I suppose, empathy is the word, that you know, you're understanding why people ended up acting in ways that, with hindsight, look incredibly extreme, but they feel are justified because of the, the seriousness of the moment. So I suppose if I want to sort of put myself in the head of someone who's desperate to leave the European Union, feels that MPs, a majority of whom had been Remainers in 2016, determined to somehow stop the UK leaving the European Union. Actually, that's not quite true, but that that's certainly a perception. And so in their minds, Parliament itself has become the obstacle to fulfilment of the referendum mandate, which is a democratic imperative because a majority of the whole population, one giant constituency of the entire nation, had voted for this thing. The justification then is, well, the referendum mandate trumps uh, the historic traditional primacy of, of Parliament. And actually, it has to be dissolved, has to be swept aside while we do this thing. Now, that's not the actual case they were making, is it? So the, the the case that they were making was
0: no, they pretended it was nothing to do with Brexit. Then subsequently, people have admitted that on the record that it was.
1: <laughs> yeah, that I think is one of the things that sort of upsets people so much about that time. That bound up with this idea that where you can make a moral case for a democratic imperative to do certain things, it was it was all sort of came bundled together with huge amounts of bad faith and dishonesty and lies, and and that's sort of why I'm wondering that question of. Actually, how wobbly were the foundations of our parliamentary democracy at that moment? You say you know, it's sort of settled down again now, but at that time, you know, how bad was it in, as a, from a constitutional point of view looking back?
0: Well, I I think it was pretty bad. Um, And I'd like to go back to something that you were saying there, because there are various reasons for writing this book. Um, This was an extraordinary period in British political and constitutional history. It will be looked back on in decades to come as an extraordinary moment. At least I hope it does. If it's not, then we're really in trouble. But I think it's very easily misunderstood because it was, you know, Brexit is complicated, Uh, the negotiations were complicated, Parliament is complicated, the politics of all of this were enormously complicated, very few people were following it uh, minutely day to day, and myths have built up. Myths were being built up as we were going through the period, deliberately as well as accidentally, Um, and this whole idea that Parliament was blocking Brexit, which we heard a lot about. You, you just quoted it. We heard a lot about it, particularly from Brexiteers. Obviously, they were the ones who were concerned about Brexit being blocked. But Parliament is Parliament is two chambers. But if we focus on the, primarily on the House of Commons, which was the one that mattered through this period, um, Parliament is six hundred and fifty people. The House of Commons is six hundred and fifty people. So who was it who blocked Brexit? I think that the picture that most people have which they got they got from some of the headlines at the time was that as you you just hinted you know remainers were blocking brexit um and this is complicated and it's you know remainers um you know we we can we can talk about whether they share part of the blame but when you've got a conservative government the primary people that you expect to vote for the policy of that government i.e brexit are conservative mps and the enormous irony of the prorogation and the claim that ultimately in the 2019 manifesto, that Parliament was, quote, seeking to thwart the will of the British people, was that one of the people who voted against Brexit repeatedly was Boris Johnson. You know, Boris Johnson and the hardline ERG voted, I mean, he voted, the Theresa May's deal was was put to the vote three times in the House of Commons. Boris Johnson voted against it on the first two occasions and other hardliners, the the famous Spartans, voted three times against it. That included people like Priti Patel and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who went on to serve in his cabinet, who were in his cabinet at the time that he prorogued parliament. So there is this claim that parliament was blocking Brexit, and therefore Boris Johnson, in order to get Brexit done, needs to close down parliament, although they didn't admit it at the time. But The people who were there closing down Parliament, Jacob Rees-Mogg was leader of the House, were the very people who had been voting against Brexit in the preceding period.
1: Now, I find this fascinating because in essence, I suppose what they would say is that or or was animating them was a conception of Brexit as a a revolutionary act and as a principle of emancipation uh, that... W- wasn't adequately represented by Theresa May's deal, uh, and wasn't, and that, as it were, Parliament uh, and that whole process had become a sort of captive of a of a Remainer of a Remain sort of construct, and 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 that therefore what they were doing was a sort of a, a, a radical, uh, revolutionary pressure against that, and they were only able to inhabit that mythological universe <laughs> you know, there's this idea that was sort of in their heads that isn't actually how parliament and the british constitution works because they'd had the referendum mandate as their they were able to say the when they say the will of the people they mean the single word leave as something superior to, and so i suppose my next question really is it's going back to 2016 is that the original constitutional sin of this whole then of of the fall of representative democracy into this terrible pit because Actually, you had this direct democratic process that gave you this simple one word, and the, as an instruction, and then you fed, fed it into a representative parliamentary machine that just wasn't capable of, of processing yeah, that instruction. Yeah.
0: Let me come to that, but let me again just momentarily go back to something that you that you said in in the question. One of the main arguments for some supporters of Brexit was the need to restore parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, we heard that quite a lot. You know David Davis talked about that. You know many people talked about that after the referendum as well as before, but there's this great irony that in the end, we wind up with Brexit supporters attacking Parliament. So you want, one of the questions is how you know how does that come about? And I think part of the answer is that there is a muddling up, and I think that, you know the will of the people is part of this as well, but there is a muddling up between the role of parliament and the role of government. So, you know, when Boris Johnson is saying there's a betrayal of Brexit, the betrayal is not really by as you as you indicate. He's not initially blaming parliament. It's the government that he's got an argument with. But then it's Theresa May's government that those people who voted against thought were not implementing an adequate form of Brexit and that's why they voted against it. But you know, that's not an argument against Parliament. They were actually using Parliament in order to block a government doing something that they didn't like. But the, the argument becomes morphed into this one about, about Parliament. I mean, in, initially there's there's this extraordinary, um, uh, when you look back it's extraordinary. I didn't even notice, you, you asked how was it writing the book and one of the things that you discover when you, when you write books like this is um, bits of the story that you hadn't been aware of at the time. And one of the most extraordinary things that I came across was Boris Johnson's article in The Telegraph just after Theresa May, Theresa May's deal had been defeated for the second time. She gave this much criticized statement in Downing Street where she, it was a very populist statement where she was saying, I am on your side. MPs are stopping this happening. I, you know, I want to deliver Brexit. I am on the side of the people. Boris Johnson writes this article in The Telegraph saying, it is wrong in every sense to blame MPs for blocking Brexit. It is both shameful and inaccurate. But he then goes on to repeat almost exactly the same words in his 2019 manifesto.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about that one as well. And I'd forgotten also the the yeah Theresa May after was it after indicative votes saying well Parliament you've had your chance and you've blown it and I'm I'm done with you <laughs> essentially I can sort of understand her frustration yeah. by that by that <laughs> stage um but it was a but you you
0: sorry go on go on
1: by that stage as you say a, a whole mythology had built up around Parliament as uh, as the, the sort of the nest of remain but actually when you go, look back at very early on sort of late 2016 people had to fight very hard to give parliament any kind of say at all down to you know, yeah. whether you trigger article 50 how you how the negotiations would be conducted i mean the the brexitism as an assertion that the popular instruction to leave effectively overrides all the traditions of parliamentary representative democracy started on the 24th of mm. june 2016 mm. 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 really yeah. didn't it yeah
0: no sorry i i didn't in then in the end get back to your question and i will so my point was just that all the way through this process you have this kind of elision of government and parliament and also of government and people because as you say the government is claiming to speak for the people and therefore to be able to circumvent parliament to get things done because it has a referendum mandate. So going back to your question about the referendum, I mean the fundamental constitutional problem in all of this is that a referendum was held with no expectation really on the part of any of the people who were organizing it, that the result was going to be a vote for change. That's totally clear, You know, right back to you know our, our first substantive chapter where we talk about the run-up to the referendum. You have conservative rebels trying to force Cameron into holding a referendum. He doesn't want to do so. He, in the end, decides that the referendum should be held just to make the thing go away. And even some of the rebels who are trying to force him to do that are not actually in favor of leaving the European Union. People talk about um, use phrases like lancing the boil, what they want to do is sideline the hardliners by showing that of course the country wants to be in the eu so let's just put this argument behind us and all move on the referendum is held with nobody including the you know the campaigners don't do it um and you know again it's hard to blame the campaigners people do what they think they need to do to achieve their goals Um, Since nobody was asking awkward questions about what Brexit would look like, um, the Leave campaign never really had to answer that question. The government, I think, bears a bigger responsibility there because the government is facilitating a referendum and it is doing no work to set out what change might mean. It's not explaining that to people. And it's not even doing any work behind the scenes to be ready for a leave vote. David Cameron instructs the civil service to not prepare for a leave vote. So you have a vote on a principle of leaving, and nobody's even started talking about what leaving might look like. You know, what about the customs union, the single market, the Northern Ireland border? All of the things that came to dominate debate over the years after the referendum were barely mentioned in the campaign. And sorting that out deciding what form Brexit should take, effectively gets handed to Parliament. David Cameron walks away, Theresa May takes over, Parliament has to work it out. And then because Parliament finds it difficult, Parliament gets the blame. And that's not really fair.
1: Yeah, this is very interesting because, uh, I mean, and and you used this phrase, well, you borrowed from the Constitutional Affairs Committee report, this phrase, a bluff call referendum, which is exactly what it was in the process that you just described.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Importantly, chaired by Bernard Jenkin, an arch Brexiteer, they were highly critical of the way the government handled that referendum and they were right.
1: Although that's partly because in a sense their bluff had been called because they won and then they realised they had no idea what it was they'd actually asked for and didn't really understand. The European Union didn't understand what leaving would would involve. And that, that raises quite an interesting, again, a sort of slightly more abstract question, which is, Cameron essentially was cocky and he thought obviously they'd win. It'd be like the Scottish referendum. Uh, and anyway, leaving the EU was such a stupid idea. You know, the, the sensible British people would, would never wash it once they saw what was at stake. He lost that bet um, and then decided you know it wasn't his problem anymore and, and walked away. That's a very specific failure of leadership and government and British politics and culture you know, on, on all sorts of levels related to the EU uh, and David Cameron. Is it also a problem intrinsic with referendums and the relationship between a referendum and British parliamentary democracy? Is, there, is it is it actually, was it just a mistake fundamentally to say, here is this huge decision we have to do, now that decision is made. And then you have, as you say, you, you sort of throw the problem to parliament, but the whole essence of parliament is, it mediates the many wills of lots of different people It doesn't claim to be one coherent single will of the people.
0: Yeah, and it's a deliberative forum where you can think through all of the complexities and you can do... Uh, You know, you negotiate, you come to compromises on multiple fronts, etc. That's exactly what Parliament does. Whereas referendums say, well, you know, do you want A or do you want B? The messages have to be very simple because you're trying to reach, you know, lots of people who aren't paying close attention. And so things get boiled down very much sort of black and white and have a danger of turning into, as this did, us. So, yes, referendums need to be used with enormous care but this could have been handled better and previous referendums i think had been handled better and in a sense cameron had been cameron had been lucky as you say you know one of the remarkable facts is that um we've had three uk wide referendums in our entire history two of them were held under david cameron and the other one was in 1975 on on the same um, question of our membership of uh, what was then the EEC. Um, so Cameron, yes, he, he he got lucky with referendums because that doesn't even include the Scottish referendum. So the first referendum that we had under Cameron um, was the one negotiated um, as part of the coalition deal on changing the electoral system for the House of Commons, changing to the alternative vote system, which some people have completely forgotten happened now. That was in 2011. That, the problem with the Brexit... One of the problems with the Brexit referendum was that, in effect, he was trying to use it to kind of circumvent Parliament taking a decision. And I think that is very dangerous. So previous referendums that have been held, for example, on the establishment of um, uh, devolution, the, the Scottish Parliament and what was then the Welsh Assembly, you've got Parliament taking a decision and then the public being asked, do you endorse this decision? And I think that is a healthy thing because you're getting it's sort of providing a double lock where the public are saying yes we support what parliament is doing everybody's agreed let's go ahead and do this the 2011 referendum was a bit different because cameron didn't actually want that reform either but the difference was that they wrote down in detail in a bill exactly what would happen if there was a vote for change it was all set out what the electoral system was going to be and had the vote for change happened that just would have all kicked in there would have been no subsequent arguments in parliament so it's a range of things. I think referendums can be quite healthy to endorse, you know, to get agreement as to whether people are happy with the decision that parliament has made. The the referendums in Scotland and Wales, and of course, Northern Ireland have underpinned in a very important way, the legitimacy of those devolved institutions. The 2011 referendum was a bit different, but at least care had been taken to ensure that a row didn't break out in parliament afterwards, and there was no such care with this referendum. And the result was catastrophic and very difficult to recover from, very difficult to pull it back after that point and get a constructive outcome after that basic error has been made.
1: That's interesting. So the the detonation of some of those sort of foundational principles of how parliamentary democracy works was, if not intrinsic to the idea of a referendum, certainly intrinsic to the manner in which this referendum was landed uh, or, or the result then landed in Parliament's lap. And I suppose that then also creates, a sort of sticking in the terrain of, of democratic theory for a moment, a problem for MPs, many of whom had voted Remain, but found that at constituency level, they were representing a lot of levers. This was a big problem for a lot of Labour MPs. And, and then you, again, this is where the direct mandate Lobs a hand grenade into representative democracy in the the sort of the Burkean sense. This Ed the famous Edmund Burke quote that you know the the MP yeah you know, sort of owes his constituents or her constituents judgments, but isn't simply delegated to do what they want. They have they also exercise independent even expert opinion that might actually contradict what their constituents want. Now that's An important principle of the way Parliament is supposed to work, but it was quite a big ask if you'd voted leave in the referendum and your MP was turning around and saying, I know you all voted leave, but take it from me as your MP. Nah, that's a terrible idea.
0: One of the very primary reasons that a referendum was held was because the Conservative Party was divided on this question. The Conservative Party had long been divided on this question, as we chart in our uh, opening Chapter, um, you know, go you. You can trace it all the way back to the 1970s. You certainly see it around Maastricht in the 1990s. You know that divide in the Conservative Party never really went away. So the referendum is held in order to pass to the public a decision that the party in power is having difficulty making for itself. So we go into this situation. Um, we go into the referendum with a divided Conservative Party. We come out also with a divided Conservative Party. The fact that the result is so narrow, you know, 48 to 52, um, and that constituencies, as you say, are divided. So there were, it's estimated there were around 85 Conservative seats where the majority was for Remain. Mostly Conservative seats voted Leave. So all of a sudden, you've got MPs who, and this is very unusual, the Burkean dilemma is, should I listen to the view of my constituents or should I should I listen to my own conscience? And in the modern world, should I listen to my party? And, and a lot of the time you end up listening to your party and making an excuse to your constituents and convincing yourself that it was what your conscience wanted because actually the party blocks are the ones which primarily dominate. And you, you have your voice heard within your party, but then you collectively accept the decision of your party. Here you've got parties which are divided and very unusually MPs who actually know the will of their constituents on this question. Most of the time, you, you, all you can do is really estimate, but because you've got a national referendum result and then clever people have broken it down by constituency, you've got a whole bunch of MPs that know that their own constituents didn't actually want this thing. And it's passed by 52 to 48. So some of those MPs find themselves in quite a dilemma as to what to do um, when it comes to the triggering of Article 50. Um, Labor whipped, that is to to get the negotiation process going to leave after the referendum, both parties whipped in favour of triggering Article 50 in order to um, um, respect the referendum result. You do get a block of about 50 Labor MPs who are mostly from those Remain constituencies who vote against it. Um, And that divide does, to an extent, exist all the way through. And there's another divide which lies on top of it as well, which is that even if you're not thinking about the principle, the referendum question in/out, when it comes to the question of what kind of Brexit should we have, you also have different constituency pressures because you know you've got some people who have fishing constituencies, you've got some people who have uh, manufacturing constituencies, you've got some people who've got constituencies which are dominated by the financial services. Uh, for example, and those pull in different directions in terms of the form of Brexit that you should have. That's fascinating. I would go back to the point that in the absence of a really clear steer from party, party normally resolves those kind of dilemmas. You get a collective decision at cabinet level and people are happy that it's been carefully thought through and that they might not much like it, but actually we're going to go with the collective decision. The cabinet was divided. You know, Theresa May's cabinet was divided all the way through this um, and the Labour Party is divided as well. You know, they've got a leader that they want. uh, They've got a result from the referendum that they don't want. But many of them have constituencies which voted leave and they don't want to betray their constituents either. So it's such a difficult situation.
1: That's fascinating. We're going to come on to Labour in a bit. uh, But before we do, I mean, I I do really like that very laid out so, so brilliantly clearly that tripartite tension between party lines, individual conscience and then there's this awareness of the need to represent what it is the constituency actually wants that was just blown apart by I was going to say the creation of new identities, Leave Remain identities, what didn't really create them. I think I I accept the argument that's been made by people who studied this at some length that Lever and Remainer became such effective badges of identity because they crystallized a whole set of propositions in relation to educational status, attitudes to globalization, all sorts of demographic sorting that had happened out in the country that only, as it were, the referendum twisted the lens and brought these things into focus uh, and then suddenly your allegiance whether you were a lever or a remainer didn't sit at all comfortably with with those three sort of things you had to to weigh up as an mp and i suppose this is an elaborate way of getting me onto the fascinating personality the character of theresa may and not people don't often use the word fascinating in relation to her character but i do think it's interesting that you have this person who is so deeply Died in the wool, traditionally conservative, upper case and lower case C, very Eurosceptic in the manner of a lot of conservatives of her generation. She was on the right of the party, voted Remain for impeccable Tory conservative reasons. Really, about making the case in terms of security uh, and sort of geopolitical stability. It was a very small C case that she made, and then suddenly she finds. And I think I can't remember what happened in her constituency, but I imagine it was pretty split, maybe in a little bit Romani, that she is absolutely at the epicentre of all those new tensions that have appeared. And she seems temperamentally and psychologically incapable of processing that complexity.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. Theresa May is obviously a very central figure in the book. I mean, it's a book about parliament rather than about government, but the Prime Minister looms very large, obviously. We can't avoid being quite critical of Theresa May. Um, but at the same time, I would, you know, going back to something that I said right at the start about seeing people seeing seeing things from different individuals' points of view, you have to acknowledge that she was dealt a virtually impossible hand at the beginning of this. I think we can criticize what Theresa May did. But we also don't have a counterfactual of somebody else who would be able to handle it better. It's not actually clear that anybody else would have been able to find the way through this. You know, we we can't know that. But so, having said that, yes, uh, in many ways, she was the wrong person. She had the wrong kind of inclinations in this situation. I mean, I think part of part of her difficulty was that she had been. Um, if only quietly associated with the Remain campaign. So she felt she had something to prove in terms of her leave credentials. But the bigger problem, I think, is the one that you indicate in terms of, you know, we talked to obviously lots of people about Theresa May. The word that came up most frequently was rigid. You know, she was, she was, she was naturally rigid, she was naturally tribal. Various phrases came up, to describe her, the one which is most memorable to me was blood and bone, a party woman, absolutely a Conservative Party loyalist to her fingertips. And what she wanted to do was hold the divided party together because it was clear that it was divided. And she sought to govern in a very kind of traditional way through, you know, a party majority, bashing something as quickly as possible through Parliament not opening up difficult arguments, not listening very much, certainly not reaching out to work with other parties, but trying to deliver this as a conservative policy. And in the early stages, she was actually a very polarizing character. So when it came to the the, the first court case, questioning whether Parliament ought to be involved in the triggering of Article 50, which the government initially didn't want to do, it was forced by the supreme court to to consult parliament and pass a short bill triggering article 50 she accused the people taking that case of seeking to subvert democracy in in doing so she was trying to set herself up against her remain opponents she was trying to draw the leave remain line even harder than it already Was in the sand. There was an alternative way of responding to the situation she found herself in in 2016. You know, the Conservatives had a majority at that point of 16. There was a 52-48 outcome in the the referendum. Her party was divided. The country was divided. Parliament was divided. The alternative way of doing it was to step in and say, look, we are all divided here. What we need to do is deliver this as a national enterprise. You know, this is not about leave and remain anymore. This is not about Labour and Conservative. This is about how we navigate our way through delivering what the people want. But she never did that. One of the problems, going back to your question about the referendum, is that the people were involved at only one moment in that single stark choice. I'm not suggesting necessarily that another referendum was a good idea, because I think it could have been quite quite difficult, but there was no attempt to involve the public in the discussion about what Brexit should mean. It became a very closed process inside Theresa May's cabinet, and some people in her cabinet even complain that she wasn't consulting them about what she, about what she was doing in the negotiations. The alternative was to say, effectively, we've got a problem here. How can we find our way through this without fragmenting and polarizing? Uh, but that absolutely wasn't her.
1: It, it absolutely wasn't. I mean, do you remember that whole, well, of course you remember that, the the fact that when she was asked what actually Brexit would involve, she would just say Brexit means Brexit. And then when she was pressed on it, at one point, she said, I remember the lobby briefing where we were told it actually meant a a red, white and blue Brexit. And someone tried to interrogate what that meant. And obviously, there was no answer. I think you touched on a a load of very important things there, actually. One is, from a psychological point of view, uh, and I was told this by people inside Number 10, the, the terror she had of the stain of Remain on her as someone who had voted Remain, the tribalism in terms of f- wanting to hold the Conservative Party together, because, as you say, there's that great, if you know, she was blood and bone, a Tory, but a Tory of a kind that was actually on its way to obsolescence, because there was this new radical revolutionary Brexit Toryism, which was incredibly unconservative and didn't respect institutions, didn't respect rules, didn't even care for the rule of law all that much. Uh, and she ends up being this sort of interregional transitional figure between a kind of Philip Hammond Toryism, because he was also very uh, conservative, also very Eurosceptic, but ended up sticking to the more traditional small C, let's do this properly, uh, ended up essentially becoming quite Romanish in his culture, although he never actually wanted to reverse the referendum result. Uh, And Boris Johnson, who wasn't conservative in all sorts of ways, and she was sort of her tribalism to an idea of Toryism that almost ceased to exist because actually all the party and identities were also fluid at the time. And... The reason I sort of dwell on that is because I think the scenario that you describe where there might have been a a more ruminative, deliberative way of engaging with this problem would have required some leadership somewhere in Parliament that was cognizant of all these changes going on and could stand above them. And she couldn't do it. But also, very obviously, Jeremy Corbyn couldn't Mm, do it either.
0: mm. No, I think think a key thing that, that happened at this point is that she... She's very keen to deny the complexity of the situation and to pretend that it's all simple when it absolutely isn't. And actually what she ends up doing is going away and doing something which is very complex, which is the negotiation. You know, she gets into all of the depth of all of the difficult trade-offs and so on and she comes back as a kind of as a proponent of compromise. So in the end, she says, you know, this isn't what everybody wants, but, you know, we have, to go, we, we have to go with this deal. And she, another element of her psychology, I think, which, you know, somebody close to her said to me that she, she simply it relates to the point that you make about these sort of different strands in the Conservative Party. She believed that having dutifully gone and done this negotiation in good faith to get what she thought was the best possible outcome for the United Kingdom. That her party would support her because, of course, that's what they do, because that's the way the world should be, and that's what she would do. She was unable to comprehend that her backbenchers would not respect that process and would be ultimately as disloyal as they were. The fact that, as I said, you know, so many, they were in the first vote um, against her deal, which was the biggest defeat, parliamentary defeat on record of those conservative MPs who were, who had come out for remain ahead of the for, for leave ahead of the referendum 90 opposed her and only 46 supported her she had not been able to to anticipate that outcome she thought that having done the deal brought back the thing that the leavers had said they wanted that they would support her and they didn't And that's when it really began, it really all fell apart because by then it was effectively too late to pivot and to start doing deals with the other parties. You had in the interim the 2017 general election, which was a catastrophic bit of the story because obviously she went to the country hoping to get a bigger majority. And if she had got a bigger majority, which the polls predicted all the way through to close to the end, um, you know, the hung parliament was a total shock. Is another of the shocks in in this in this story. Had she got that bigger majority, she would have been able to sideline some of the hardliners, the people who became the Spartans, and get her deal through. Because ultimately, most of her party, including those who who supported Remain, including it's an important part to remember in the story that some of the some of the people who were seen as disloyal in the end, who were thrown out by Boris Johnson, people like Ken Clark, you know, the ultimate Europhile. People like Oliver Letwin, people like David Gork, Rory Stewart, they had all supported her deal. It was the hardliners who hadn't. So if she'd got a bigger majority at that time, she might have been fine. But the fact that Parliament was so finely balanced and her her own position was enormously weakened by that outcome, she was nearly deposed after the 2017 election. And at the same time, the character who I'm sure you want to get to, who you've just mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn, was ironically strengthened by the outcome of the 2017 election. He would have been deposed had Labour done as badly as people were expecting. And then that might also have changed the dynamic. So if that out- outcome of that election had been different with, with Theresa May strengthened and a new Labour leader, there might have been a way through, but it went horribly wrong at that point.
1: It, it makes a fascinating counterpart to the referendum because as you say... Yeah, the, the public were never consulted on what Brexit would mean. Well, ne- not even in 2016, they weren't, because they were just asked whether or not they wanted to do it. And at that, pay- at that stage, no one really understood, even a lot of people who voted Remain. And campaign for Remain didn't really understand, actually, what leaving the EU would entail. They were consulted in 2017. But with what the question was on that ballot paper, I mean, it's impossible to say what people were answering. It's extraordinary, as you say, with... The I mean, because I was focused a lot on labour and their dilemmas at that time, uh, and like many other people had went into at least went into the campaign expecting that they would be crushed because Jeremy Corbyn seemed so unpopular, and was surprised by the outcome. There was then this long period where there wasn't ever really a proper post mortem on what happened, but we know that a number of things. Well, we I think we know a number of things were co- complicating the picture. There were people who were voting Labour because because of Jeremy Corbyn, because they were excited by his radical socialist manifesto. There were people who were voting Labour despite Jeremy Corbyn because they thought there was no way he could win, but they were actually expressing a kind of remain- Pushback against what Theresa May was trying to do, but those all still piled up as votes for Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I've been told by people who are campaigning in those constituencies and Labour people that there were in the, the the red wall, as it has come later to be known, which was actually targeted very aggressively by Theresa May in that campaign. She pioneered the electoral strategy of trying to win those voters, in those seats, Labour lee voters. A lot of them, actually stuck with Labour because Theresa May threw the campaign away, did it was just ran the worst campaign ever. But also, ironically, they thought Brexit was settled. It had we hadn't yet been through that seventeen, eighteen, nineteen period where it looked like Brexit was in play and there was a people's vote campaign and people actually wanted to try and undo it. So actually all sorts yeah. of crazy things were going on in terms of people's motivation that we have no yeah. idea yeah. what that election said, except for the fact that
0: Yeah. And I mean if you if you fair bear- <laughs> Bear in mind that pretty much all the way through the campaign, notwithstanding that things were going wrong for her, the expectation was of a conservative landslide. And so I think there are probably some people coming out, voting Labour because you nearly said this, but um, I'm not sure whether they were one of your categories, Um, not wanting Jeremy Corbyn, but knowing that he had no hope of getting anywhere near power and actually wanting to stave off this conservative landslide, which would have felt unhealthy. Um, And of course, it turned out very differently.
1: What then becomes fascinating in terms of the relationship between tribalism, shifting party identities, and then the difficulty of of constitutional and institutional structures just really struggling with the sheer complexity of what has to be done, you get a situation where the group of people who by late 2019, coming back towards a prorogation point, who are thinking this is an absolute mess, Someone else needs to be in charge here and Parliament starts to arrogate all sorts of interesting powers to itself and start thinking, "Okay, well, maybe we need to just do the show ourselves. That whole process gets held back by the fact that even very remain inclined liberal pro-European or just pro-democracy constitutional order uh, Tories draw the line at working with Jeremy Corbyn and Jeremy Corbyn draws the line at working with anyone who isn't Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's this, I'd forgotten actually until I read it in your book that how live that discussion was of uh, governments of national unity, uh, somehow putting someone else in who, whether it's Yvette Cooper or Hillary Benn or some, or, you know, Dominic Grieve or someone uh, because Johnson was in by then, but had inherited the the lack of a majority, the non-majority, and then looking back, that's obviously a completely wild fantasy because Labour MPs would never go for it and Corbyn was just beyond the pale.
0: I think there are two phases there. You've missed out a phase, actually, which is a really important one. The longest chapter in the book before you get to the fall of May, the arrival of Johnson and the prorogation. You do have this long period where her deal in January 2019 and she doesn't fall Until the summer. He takes over in July. So you've got that lengthy period in the first half of 2019 when we're supposed to be leaving originally at the end of March. And we have repeated votes on her deal which keep failing. And you enter this phase where basically the Prime Minister has proven unable to build a majority in Parliament for the thing that she has negotiated. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking to the end of the Article 50 period. Some of the hardliners in her party are actually rather hoping that we're going to crash out without a deal. Um, And you begin then to get people galvanized in her own party, people like Caroline Spellman, Oliver Letwin, who've always actually been very mainstream loyalist figures they're not sort of hardline rebels on the other side of the spectrum at all. They're not naturally, you know, friends of Labour, um, but they are very frightened about there being a no-deal. They've voted for her deal, they've done the loyal thing, it's not working. And so you begin in that period to get these cross-party alliances happening in Parliament between those kind of people on the Conservative side and then people like Hillary Benn and Yvette Cooper on the Labour side. And we go through this extraordinary period where there's an attempt to build a majority in parliament that isn't, in effect, led by the government, Uh, which, again, as a parliamentary scholar, you know, that is a pretty unique experience. And I think there are questions there as to whether parliament let us down. I think there are some questions about whether the rules of parliament, I mean, in particular, the fact that the government in our system, standing orders give the government the right to set the agenda, but don't take account of the fact that the government might occasionally be a minority government you know, that was a very unusual set of circumstances. So there are questions about whether a minority government should be able to set the agenda. Theresa May, unable to build a majority, faces these rebellions, these joint rebellions from Labour and Conservative people and other parties to take control of the parliamentary agenda, to vote on alternative forms of Brexit, to try and get us some kind of soft Brexit, perhaps, that there could be cross-party agreement on. But there are so many obstacles in the way of that. After 2019, many of the people in Labour who might have gone along with a br- soft Brexit actually have become wedded to the idea of another referendum. So they're very uh, rather half-heartedly prepared to accept a soft Brexit. If, in effect, nobody nobody really wants a soft Brexit, they either want a hard Brexit or no Brexit. And so trying to build um, a majority in the middle for a thing that nobody really is that enthusiastic about is pretty difficult. And it's virtually impossible when you don't have the government machine behind you to get it done. And the biggest problem uh, in terms of getting agreement on any kind of compromise in that period is not so much the divisions on the Remain side, of which there are many. It's very, very agonized on the Remain side between you know, the second referendum people are trying to persuade the soft Brexit people to vote for their amendments and vice versa. They're trying to build these very fragile alliances. The basic problem is that the Conservatives won't vote for any of this. Um, there are about 30 conservatives who vote for any kind of soft Brexit, notwithstanding that Ken Clark is leading one of these amendments. Nick Bowles, if you remember him, is leading another of the amendments. Nick Bowles ends up deserting the Conservative Party in, in disgust because so few of his own co-partisans will vote for his compromise position. And one of the reasons that so few conservatives – there were two reasons. One – one reason is that they're under pressure from conservative associations who've gone very hard Brexit. And the other one is that they're afraid that actually, if Theresa May is given the job of delivering us off Brexit, she will be brought down. So they're in total, it's got a kind of gridlock situation. And then she is brought down, and then you move to Johnson, and then it's impossible to find an alternative government because Jeremy Corbyn is in the way.
1: There are so many extraordinary little moments uh, connected to that. I mean, Philip Lee crossing the floor literally actually but Johnson was already the prime minister by then but you know, actually you know, walking across the floor and joining the lib dems in in the yeah. chamber uh, in protest at Johnson and and it is extraordinary how simultaneously the 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 appetite for some new party formation that would just shatter the ossified rigid and no longer it felt at the time relevant to the challenge Labour-Tory duopoly in England. Obviously, Scotland's a different question, as always. And yet it, it never quite came together because it turns out of the various bits of the UK's formal and informal constitution that were rattled and shaken so badly by this period, the, Labour, the two-party system turned out to be uh, one of the most resilient. And I remember on the point about the soft, soft Brexiters versus people's voters, I, one of the uh, most illuminating conversations I remember having about this at the time was with David Gork, who was very much in the, we have to do this, but let's do it in a, in a rational, soft Brexit kind of way, uh, saying to me once, the problem with all these people's vote MPs Is they've got very, they've become radicalized by support outside the chamber. So they've got their own version of the will of the people, their bit of the people. Uh, And he said they compared them to mountaineers who they've got higher up the mountain than they ever thought they would get. Now they can see the summit, which is actually not doing Brexit at all, but they haven't got enough oxygen to get there and they'll push on up and then they'll die just before they reached the top. And he was absolutely right about that. He called it completely right. Um, uh, but that, as you say, that the way that no deal as a proposition radicalised everyone, it, it, it mm. sort of, to me, even more than prorogation thinking about it, that concept was really the the abyss off which compromise, rationality, engagement with the complexity of this fell. Because uh, for, for the hardline Brexiters, it became a point of mm. faith and a point of absolute denial of, economic, trade, political, diplomatic reality. And for Remainers, it demonstrated that the whole thing was completely apocalyptic and the best thing to do was to not do it at all.
0: But it it must be said, I mean, I would reiterate the point that I just made, that the people you're calling the Remainers, um, the the, the non-hard Brexit people, whether they be for soft Brexit or a referendum, they they did actually hold together quite well in those votes you know the 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 pro-referendum people did by and large hold their noses and vote for soft brexit because they realized it was better than a no deal um and the reason there wasn't a majority was primarily the lack of conservative support and david Gork was in the government at that time i think the government the government were abstaining um therefore he couldn't vote on, on on either side. but among conservative backbenchers, there was virtually no support for rescuing the situation by voting for a, for a non-conservative proposition or even a proposition led by Ken Clark or, or Nick Bowles. I'm glad you mentioned um, the Philip Lee moment because I think you just illustrate you know this is all it's traumatic and agonizing and miserable in in many ways uh, and it's also technical and complicated as we've emphasized, but there are also some enormous moments of high drama in this story. And that's, you know, all of this we wanted to record in the book, because it is this complex, but fundamentally very important period in British politics. And it's a huge, it's very serious, but it's also a huge political soap opera at the same time.
1: Yeah, it was fascinating. And, um, and frustratingly, we're running out of time because, as I said, at the start, I said I was oh, deeply traumatised by this whole process and, and hated going into it. But obviously, I love it and can't get enough of it. Um, the, but let's just, before we finish, think a little bit about the legacy of it then, because it was both a discreet episode in the sense that after 2019 you had the massive Tory majority and then you had a pandemic which created this political cultural kind of cordon sanitaire between the past and the present in a weird way and also obviously enduring because Brexitism is now in the DNA of the Conservative Party and attitudes to Parliament even among Tory MPs uh, have been totally i think and be interested to know if you agree with this transformed by that experience so just thinking we've just had or we are currently going through the process of having the illegal immigration bill it feels to me that the treatment of that the way it's being presented rushed through parliament the way some of the arguments are being made about what the what the people want and what it is mp's duty to do regardless of whether something's actually practicable or not feel absolutely colored and shaped by the whole process that you've written about in your book even though it's a notionally a different question.
0: Yeah, well I think you're right and we try and assess at the end of the book whether there were were there flaws in our constitution shown up by this process and we've touched we've touched on them mostly that the fundamental problem was the way the referendum was uh, was 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 held that parliament itself was not really to blame because parliament is Parliament is a is a forum of six hundred and fifty people who are supposed to represent different points of view, different parts of the country, different parties. It was divided. It reflected the country fairly because the country was divided, and it was doing its best to try and find an outcome. The problem was a malfunction in government and in the governing party, which meant that that system couldn't tick over in the way that it usually does. But yes, I think that partly because of minority government, you know, minority government added to this very divisive political issue, there was a growing instinct in government to shut parliament out, uh, to avoid scrutiny at all costs, because parliament was a dangerous place where you were going to get defeated, you wouldn't get your policy through. And that continued through into COVID, really. Uh, I mean, we obviously still had Johnson as prime minister then. His instincts were always, you know to make decisions without having to answer too many questions for himself and not really to listen to other voices and not particularly to respect scrutiny. COVID made that very easy. Parliament was physically shut. Um, decisions had to be taken very quickly. We have got into a terrible habit as a result of these two processes of emergency legislation, trying to rush legislation through as quickly as possible, trying to do as much as possible via secondary legislation which parliament doesn't really get to look at at all rather than primary legislation and yes we're seeing them on the small boats bill trying to get it through the house of commons in three days from a standing start as well you know no real consultation on the policy beforehand this is very unhealthy
1: well and a retained eu, EU law bill as well where some of the secondary yeah. i don't want to get into uh, the sort of affirmative uh, you know, statutory instrument approval process and praying against and all that sort of stuff much so I love mm-hmm. a bit of parliamentary procedure but the short version is you're giving ministers the power to just strike laws out and write yep. their own ones without yep. any scrutiny at and all. that
0: goes back to some of the things that we were talking about before I mean the, the the polarization around brexit so that if you are if you're a person who's um saying hold on a tick maybe we should take a bit longer and think about this and maybe we shouldn't give par- maybe we shouldn't give government these uncontrolled powers. You are in some way getting in the way of Brexit, uh, because if you're pro-Brexit, you just want to allow the government to sweep all this stuff away. You know, that polarisation is clearly an, un- an unhealthy thing. And what you get, which we saw a lot in this whole saga, is the kind of politicisation and polarisation of views about the role of institutions so you know you had the people who were pro parliament and anti parliament the people who were pro courts and anti courts the people who who are maybe pro scrutiny and anti scrutiny and actually it's not healthy to have one tribe that thinks you should be able to bash stuff through without proper consideration for the consequences of policy because when you do that, it it, it makes bad policy. That's, that's a route to very bad government. And I think that's what we need to unlearn from the, this process. One of the things that this whole story tells us or, or is about the complexity of politics against simplistic views of how to make decisions. So, you know, we live in a complicated world. We are a very large, you know, we are a large and diverse population. We have to make decisions sometimes which don't please everybody. We have to weigh up costs and benefits and trade-offs and so on. Making political decisions is very difficult. It's messy. It's time-consuming. But actually, it's better than the alternative, which is just imposing solutions on people without properly thinking them through. And I think we need to get back to a bit of respect for the political process with a small p., Um, the negotiation and compromise that gives us the policies that maybe, um, you know, are in the best interests of the majority of people.
1: This is where the, the real wickedness, the perniciousness of the will of the people as an instrument of political argument to override exactly what you've just so eloquently said about the function of a democracy, not Necessarily being to give anyone all of what they want all of the time, but to satisfy enough people enough of the time that those trade offs get managed in a way that people feel invested in the system as a whole. So they, yeah, you know, that's how you're allowed to have losers' consent, and you accept that it might be your turn next time, or you need to make a better argument to win. And it seems to me that the real tragedy of Brexit, aside from the fact that I think it was a bad idea for the country, uh, is that it did seem to embed a populist conception of what politics actually is uh, right in the heart of British democracy. And it's very hard to uproot that because the mechanism that put it there was itself fundamentally democratic. There was a vote.
0: I think there's a real danger in, because of politics, because of politics being messy and complicated, offering people easy answers, dishonest easy answers, and deliberately polarizing a public um, for electoral gain rather than thinking about um, the longer term stability of our democracy, our institutions. Um, And we did get very close to some of that. And I'm afraid, although she never meant to, and I think she realized the errors at a late stage when Johnson was about to take over, Theresa May did actually facilitate some of that through this process by feeding that leave-remain divide at the early stages, by blaming Parliament, by never explaining that actually it was people inside her own party who were the blockage to getting the agreement. She always wanted to blame Parliament rather than singling out the rebels inside the Conservative Party. And actually, if she had, even at that stage, admitted some of the complexity, she had potentially some of the tabloids on her side who were angry with the with the conservative hardliners who were not supporting Brexit but she ran government in a very polarized way and then Johnson came, over, came along and kind of put boosters on it.
1: She fulfilled the, the, she's, the description that George Orwell had actually of radical intellectuals on the left who, not that Theresa May was an intellectual, but he said they're people who play with fire without even knowing that fire is hot. I would think that with Theresa May, she really, she dabbled in something that was spectacularly dangerous and I don't think she actually understood. I think she, she was so complacent in her understanding of the essential conservatism and wisdom and institutional stability of British democracy that she didn't really know how volatile it would become. And an example of that is making Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, deliberately, as I was told by people who worked with her, uh, so that he would be seen to fail and it would be clear how useless he was and that would disqualify him from being a candidate to be prime minister in the future so she elevated him in the expectation that he would then trip and fall and wouldn't be a threat and it was that
0: sounds like another bluff call yeah exactly
1: it? And, and and the most irresponsible way to appoint yeah. someone who's a foreign yeah. secretary yeah. at a moment when international relations and diplomacy are the most are of the utmost mm. primacy to what you're mm. doing um
0: And I I think this was also the supposed um, campaign brilliance of Dominic Cummings, you know, who was prepared to go in campaigning to places where other people hadn't been prepared to go, to divide people, to offer them simple slogans. And I think, you know, we obviously had take back control, but the more dishonest slogan, I think, was get Brexit done because that was built on support for Boris Johnson's deal, which is quite clear, and we do describe this in Chapter 10 of the book. Some of the people on the inside were well aware that this was not actually an oven ready deal. They were well aware of the problems around the Northern Ireland Protocol. It was then sold to the British public as getting Brexit done. And we're still arguing about it now.
1: Yes, he essentially, I think it's safe to say Boris Johnson lied about uh, what he'd actually agreed and uh, privately made it clear to Conservative MPs, uh, that he had no intention of honouring the deal, and again, you you, you describe that uh, in the book that they they the anticipation of reneging on a treaty that had been signed ostensibly to get Brexit done uh, predated that election. They went into it knowing that the you know, with the, they with their fingers crossed behind their back, uh, which was uh, uh, just spectacularly wrong, uh, both in morally, uh, democratically, uh, and in terms of actually just what's effective as government.
0: Really, it's it's many of these, you know, there are ve- what we're identifying, I think, is various forms of highly opportunistic political behaviour that there is a danger that they become ingrained. And I think we really have to work hard to leave them behind because they're very unhealthy uh, for good policymaking, good decision-making, but also for maintaining public trust in the democratic process. Politics should be principled. It shouldn't be cynical. Politicians operate within the constraints of the electoral process and they have to navigate that all of the time. But exploiting the public through simple slogans that can't be delivered upon is not a way of maintaining a healthy politics. And, you know, we need to move away from that. An
1: optimistic view, because we like to try to be optimistic on the podcast, is that for all, and I don't disagree with anything you've just said uh, about the the peril, for all that, the guardrails stayed up at some level. Uh, and and Boris Johnson was found out and he was ejected because he he was so pathologically dishonest that that, that did ultimately, he was unfit for government and he was brought down the parliament was not dissolved just on the on the tyrannical impulse of a prime minister because the supreme court intervened so in a sense for all that britain's ancient parliamentary democracy looked rickety and it sounded like the timbers were groaning and creaking and the whole thing might even fall over actually it didn't and the system worked so genuine final final question Meg. Uh, thank you for giving us so much of your time two-part question. Is that true? Can we at least be confident that actually the system turned out to be more resilient than it felt at that perilous moment in 2019 at the prorogation? And if not, uh, or if there, the hazards are still great, as I think you've said they are, is there some, some kind of low-hanging constitutional reform fruit that we could pluck, something institutional that we can do to hasten the Culture change, the political change, to get back to the kind of politics that you were describing a moment ago?
0: I think the system has righted itself largely, but I think it would be I wouldn't go so far as I think you said, can we be confident? And I think it would be foolish to ever be confident. I think there's a danger of being complacent because we are, you know, we have for such a long time been such a stable democracy. And I think that in a way, that's why Theresa May felt able to play populist cards because people w- w- didn't really didn't see the dangers of going down that route because we think that we have such a solid democratic system that actually it's it's never going to it's never going to unravel but i think what we've seen in the, in the uk through this period and we're seeing it in many countries around the world i mean you know most obviously in the us no democracy is as robust perhaps as we would like to think and in terms of institutional change It's ironic, I think, that as the director of something called the Constitution Unit, I don't really think that institutional change is primarily what's required. There are some things. Doing referendums better, uh, perhaps giving Parliament... Or not at
1: all. Is that another thing? Should we maybe just not do referendums?
0: (laughs) Perhaps giving Parliament more control of its own agenda and being... Better prepared for the next potential minority government, although hopefully it won't be doing um, delivering such a divisive policy as this. Because the watchword for minority government is generally stay away from the controversial stuff, do the safe stuff. But Theresa May uh, was trapped and unable to unable to do that. But you know, we end the book by saying that the most important. Um, lessons we need to learn are actually cultural lessons, not institutional lessons. And I think that precisely is about not being complacent about the the robustness of our democracy. And if you think you can reach for institutional solutions, you can look around the world to places that have written constitutions, places that have uh, proportional electoral systems, places that have stronger courts, et cetera, et cetera. And you can find populism rising in all of those countries and, and, and worries about the, the, the robustness of democracy in all of those countries. So I think what we need to do is get back to respecting the political process and not and realizing that there aren't easy answers and having a bit of patience uh, for negotiating outcomes and recognizing the dangers of populism. Uh, so it's cultural change, not institutional change, above all else, I think, that we we here and in many other countries need to focus upon.
1: Well, you have been exemplary in your patience and explaining the complexity of these things uh, on this podcast, for which now there really is no time left. But I can at least steal a few more seconds to say thank you, Meg Russell, very much for joining us. Uh,
0: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a fascinating discussion. And obviously, I hope that people are going to go and buy and read the book.
1: Excellent. I'm sure they will. They, they ought to. I I, I, I endorse that message. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 I forgot. I mean, it is, it's such a gripping story, just in terms of the, how all the extraordinary things that happened. This is Phil, the producer here. Just to quickly let you know, Meg Russell and Lucy James' book is released on Thursday, the 23rd of March. If you want to buy a copy with a discount code, then there is a link in the show notes. So uh, check that one out if you want to buy the book. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Please do follow, like, share, write a review if you found the episode of any interest at all. And um, we'll be back soon with another fascinating guest. Until next time.